3: Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katz is here Sunday morning. We have one great show for you today. We have Congressman Peter King. We have Governor David Patterson. Savas TV Coast, the new Supreme President of AHEPA, and what they're doing to, to get rid of prejudice in our country. We have Eric Schiffler talking about the Ferry Hawks. Councilman Robert Holden. And the situation with the migrants is unbearable. And let's start off with Michael Stoller talking about the real estate industry in New York.
0: Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning, I have the opportunity to have one of the most busiest and active developers in New York. I have Stephen Dubb, who is a principal at the Beachwood Organization. Thanks for being here.
4: Thanks for having me, Michael.
0: So tell me what the Beechwood organization is doing, especially in this time of re- definitely a recession coupled with high interest rates. It's a difficult. It's a good time for being a developer and a bad time.
4: Yeah, I I, I don't remember interest rates ever being this higher, at least this high at least not in my career. But at the same time, we are selling a lot of houses. Uh, it it I, I would not have guessed this a year ago when rates started rising. But there's not a lot of supply on the market. and people. You know, continue to need to move for all the reasons that people want and need to move, and so I, I've been surprised, but it's been it's been a good year of selling houses so far.
0: Now, what are the price ranges of these houses that you're selling?
4: They range from the five hundred thousands uh, up to three and a half million dollars, depending on the community that we're building. So, tell me a little bit about the Selby. So, it's two hundred and thirty seven uh, apartments and hotel units. So, it's mixed use. There will be a restaurant that's open to the public. And they're really – the the size and the finishes in the units are, are what I'd say is nicer than most of the condominium, the luxury condominiums being marketed on Long Island right now. So it's, it's unique. There's nothing else like it. Um, and we're catering to wealthy empty esters in Nassau and Suffolk County.
0: Who, but it's not an age-restricted community, correct? N-
4: that's totally correct. It's not age-restricted. And by the way, we get a ton of families, young families, moving out of New York City who are trying to figure out where they're going to buy a house so they land with us for a year or two. Um, and they tend to not have kids who are old enough to go to school, so, so they're early in the, in the process. But, um, uh, and we get a ton of doctors and people who work in the medical community. But our biggest demographic, I'd say, is empty nesters, retirees. But it's not age-restricted.
0: Now, do you have any age-restricted pro- projects that you're in working with now?
4: Yeah. Um Country Point at Plainview is age restricted. Country Point at Yapank is age restricted. Plainview is six hundred and sixty homes. Yapank is four hundred homes. Both of them are really highly amenitized communities. So um our buyers move there for Um, A house that's more manageable, a condo, um, less maintenance, they don't deal with landscaping, snow removal, garbage, etc. How
0: expensive is the HOA, the community, charges for this luxury amenities package?
4: Uh, It varies between, I'd say, $250 a month up to $600 a month, depending on the community and depending on the house. Um but what they really move for is is the lifestyle, and that's just that's not just the no maintenance that's the uh, the clubhouse, the swimming pools, the card rooms um they're basically both of those communities have country clubs built into them, and uh and our buyers love it. no golf clubs no golf clubs you know we found um we built uh, a community on a golf course a couple of years ago and we thought we'd have tremendous demand from golfers. Uh, and we found we really didn't. Uh, the people moved to that community for the same lifestyle reasons I just des- described, but not necessarily for the golf. They liked the view, but they didn't want to play golf. So, what about
0: the active adult communities? The topic of that.
4: Um, well, I think the, the Long Island, Nassau and Suffolk has a, a massive uh, demographic of empty nesters, uh, and and they tend to be uh, pretty wealthy, and a lot of them have been in homes for. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I'm, I'm talking single-family homes. And as you get older and your kids leave, um, you don't want to deal with climbing up the stairs. You don't want to deal with the maintenance of the house. Uh, and, uh, you know, like I said, snow removal, garbage, all that stuff. It's a pain. Um, and so the appeal of our active adult communities is not having to deal with that. The Condominium Association or the Homeowners Association takes care of all that. So you just get to focus on, on you know, having fun.
0: Now, you have one development, I'm not sure if it was the Selby or something else, which is really like a hotel opportunities for people.
4: Yes. So, so we have two buildings um, that are part apartment, part hotel, um, and both have restaurants that are open to the public. Both have exceptional restaurants. Um, that's the Selby and the Vanderbilt. Both of those buildings are located in Westbury, and, and it's new product for Long Island. Nobody had done something like that before. Um, and we talked about the Selby a little bit and that caters mostly to empty nesters. It also caters to snowbirds. So we have a lot of, uh, we we have a lot of guests who will live in Florida eight months of the year and then come stay at those buildings four months of the year in the, in the hotel rooms. Or we have, um, we've got renters who, who rent there and their kids come home from college periodically and they stay in the hotel rooms. Um, and so it's a, it's a great option for people.
0: Let's talk about what you're doing, which you did started many years ago, Arvum by the Sea. Yeah,
4: in the the Rockaways. So, uh, so it's a project that's near and dear to my heart, my father's heart, um, and our partners, the Benjamin Companies. It's 120 acres. It was barren wasteland in the Rockaways that had been condemned by New York City in the 60s under Mayor Lindsay, Um, and the city had planned to redevelop that land, and they could not get it done for decades. Um, We were. We were selected by Mayor Giuliani, actually, a couple of rooms over right now, right after September 11th to be the master developer to redevelop that 120 acres. Um, And the city at the time wanted a project that would help to revitalize the Rockaway Peninsula um, and that would bring the middle class back to the Rockaways. Uh, And by doing that, hopefully stem uh, sort of the downward spiral of crime, drug use, um, poverty that, that Rockaway had fallen into. And 20 years later, that project has been really successful in in achieving those goals. So uh, the scope of the project is, of Arvin by the City, is 2,300 homes, uh, a charter school, a YMCA, about 100,000 square feet of retail space. And to date, we've built and opened the YMCA. We've built 100,000 square feet of retail space, including a stop and shop supermarket, which was the first um, new grocery store to open in the Rockaways in over 30 years. It, it, it was kind of a food desert. Um, uh, and we built about 1,700 homes so far. Uh, and we really have helped to lift up not just the two census tracts so that that project straddles, uh, but the Rockaway Peninsula as a whole. It's it's really under... I'm
0: so happy that uh, Stephen Dubb has been with me today on the Stowler Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. Thanks again.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: With us today is uh, former Congressman Peter King. And... Uh, uh, Peter King, uh, what what are you most concerned about our country? You've been a congressman for 28 years, and you've seen it uh, a lot happen. What are you most concerned about right now for for your kids and grandkids?
2: Don, I, I would say the almost total breakdown in the country between one side and the other, the way every issue seems to be divided along such really uh, bitter partisan lines, and uh, also you. Know, uh, Something which you and I have discussed, even in uh, professions like the law, which used to be more highly regarded than it is today. You know, Lawyers, it, it, by its nature, this is an adversarial business. One side fights with the other, but it was always done within certain rules. It's done like boxers. They have the Marquis of Queensbury rules. They have to, you know, there's no fouling allowed, there's no butting allowed. Uh, it's, uh, the, the certain rules have to be followed. And I find out some of these indictments, for instance, against President Trump, they are using politics to criminalize uh, a political opponent. I I read the indictments of President Trump, whether it's about uh, January 6th or certainly here in New York about the uh, payments to a uh, Playboy model or whatever she was. The fact is the, the prosecutors know that they are leaving out important facts, exculpatory facts. For instance, in the indictment that was going on with President Trump on January 6th, there's not a mention anywhere that he told everyone to march peacefully. And also, the prosecutor gave the impression that he was being indicted for causing an insurrection or causing a riot. Yet nothing in the charges adds up to that. They're trying to really camouflage a political attack by disguising it as an indictment. We saw the same thing with District Attorney Bragg in New York. And that, to me, goes against, listen, you expect a tough fight. But in that fight, uh, there's supposed to be no rabbit punches. You're supposed to put everything on the line. And you also, if you're a prosecutor, you're supposed to put The information that's favorable to the defendant to be made known. That's not being done here. So I'm using that as just the most recent example of how the criminal law is now being used as a political tool. And uh, also, John, as far as ethics, we have a situation in Albany where the state may be almost going broke. The revenues are down so much. taxpayers are moving out of New York. Expenses are getting higher. And yet when you see the politicians in Albany, they don't seem to care. I mean, there's always going to be political differences about how much money you should spend, what programs you should keep going. But, again, that was always within certain parameters that you're not going to allow a state or a city to go bankrupt. You're not going to spend money foolishly. You're going to have to at least debate it. Now, with the supermajority Democrats have in Albany, they don't seem to care. They don't even care what the governor says. I mean, they they can override her vetoes. So it's just a breakdown in basic respect for one another basic respect for ethics and i just see it getting worse and we see it with the uh you know, the roosevelt hotel and people are lined up out in the streets sleeping in the streets old people are here illegally and yet hard-working new yorkers have to find their way to work they have to uh, walk around many of these people they have to pay taxes to uh, subsidize these people and uh Yet, uh, if you you know listen to the progressives, uh, they're more worried about the people coming into the country illegally than they are about the hardworking middle-income families that are struggling to uh, pay their bills and put their kids through school.
3: Well, there's so many veterans uh, are starting to to say, how come, you know, we're taking care of the people coming through the borders versus taking care of uh, our, my uh, my friends, my. Uh, my veteran friends or, or my American homeless friends. I mean, I think the rule should be we take care of American people first before we worry about people in Central America. I certainly
2: agree we should take care of Americans first and first and foremost to be America's veterans. They're the, people, they're the people who put their lives in the line. I mean, literally risked loss of life and limb to protect our country. Many of them came back physically wounded. Others, quite frankly, emotionally or mentally wounded, going through uh, a post-traumatic stress syndrome. Many of them can't afford to uh, uh, live in a uh, decent home, a diff- decent housing, because they can't get a job that pays enough money. That's, to me, all, so much of our effort to be put into that. Instead, and I'm again, I try to be a friend of Eric Adams, but the fact that he was welcoming people, bragging about the fact that New York was a sanctuary city, and basically urging uh, illegal migrants to come to New York, now we're being overwhelmed by it. I don't know what the numbers are. You 50,000, you a 100,000. Well, the millions, number the millions, other day dollars.
3: was there's 100,000 uh, uh, migrants in New York City. Besides that, there's 60,000 uh, homeless. So at what point do we reach the, uh, you know, the bad point?
2: I, I, John, I, I think we're at the boiling point almost now. And, uh, again, but, you know, you have to realize the people had a chance in the you know, last election and they— voted to keep Democrats in office. Believe me, I'm not making this partisan because there's enough Republicans that can screw things up, too. I mean, you can't have it both ways. People can't be complaining about what's happening and then vote for the same people every time. So this is, uh, again, it's time for people to wake up, pay more attention, and realize that being in a democracy... You have to work at it. People have to work at it. Voters have to work at it, and elected officials have to work at maintaining a sense of ethics and decency, and realize that their constituents, the hardworking men and women, are the one that deserves first and foremost to be, to be properly cared for and have have their necessary means, necessary requests met. And again, as you said, John, first and foremost among that would be our veterans.
3: Let's take care of them first. Let's take care of. Of the American homeless and the American people that are in need before we worry about the rest of the world. That's all I'm saying.
2: Yeah, I mean, it sounds good to be taking care of the whole world. The fact is, you have to be practical. And uh, taking care of the whole world means, in effect, no one's going to be taken care of. There's not enough money to go around to everyone. And what's going to lead to is just a breakdown in society, a breakdown in uh, quality of life. That's going to force, it's going to end up with New York looking like San Francisco or some third-world country.
3: Congressman uh, Peter King, anything else before we uh, sign off for Sunday morning and you can go out and enjoy the sun? I'm
2: going to enjoy the sun, and uh, I'll be seeing you tomorrow night in the studio for uh, Cats and Cosby at 5 o'clock on Monday afternoon.
3: Look forward to it. Thank you, Congressman Peter King, and uh, keep fighting hard for America because our kids and grandkids, depending on us, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, John. This is the Cats table We'll be right back. Welcome back to the
5: Catch Roundtable. This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor.
3: Today is former Governor David Patterson. Good morning, Governor Patterson. How are you today?
1: Good morning, John. And to start off today, you and I have been invited to present at a forum involving real estate and business uh, all around the metropolitan area, uh, New York City, Long Island, even Westchester, New Jersey, that kind of thing. And they had a little um, conversation with us about what they wanted to talk about. And I was really surprised because I thought the first thing that they would mention is Article Article 421A exemption to uh, developers who would be building – housing in dense areas and the fact that more and more it's become affordable housing, which is, doesn't work for the developers. But that wasn't the first thing they mentioned. I thought they might uh, talk about the encumbrances that these businesses suffered during the pandemic when there were lighter penalties for a late rent or evictions. They didn't want to talk about that either. Then the issue of crime, I thought they'd raise that. They didn't raise that at all. What they raised is that the Albany politicians, as they put it, have no understanding of real estate development or business, have a total resentment against people who do it, and that it is causing them to make uh, their lives more miserable. And I just thought that that was kind of interesting because When I first went to the legislature, and I was the third youngest state senator in in New York's history, and I just turned 30, and at that time, you know, I probably had that point of view that a lot of young people have, uh, particularly when they're in college or, you know, just starting out. But I learned later on that it really was the backbone of the city's revenues and really is the essential element to New York City's standing particularly the taxes that they pay and it was surprising to me that they um, have really picked up on that kind of resentment because it's part of an overall problem I think we're having these days where we look at people we find out what they do and we have an immediate judgment against them without really any portfolio or not spending any time trying to understand them.
3: Uh, Understood because I I have uh, been around some of those uh, Albany people and they said to me Oh, you guys are going to pay anyway. That was the exact comment uh, that the person gave me.
1: Yeah, that, see, that's uh, <laughs> pretty indicative, and it's not separate from how I think a lot of people believe in Albany. And I've got some news for them. New York State's income taxes, according to Tom DeNappo, he doesn't make a big deal out of it, but he puts the statistics out every month, the tax receipts are less and less of the percentage that New York State was expecting to get, it's going to put the governor in a terrible position because they could have an out-year budget gap, and that would mean she might have to call the legislature back to either raise taxes or cut programs to so that when they try to pass the budget next year, they're not ten to $12 billion in arrears. So, you know, if they thought about governor, that...
3: The way the way things are right now, if they try to raise taxes... People will just leave faster. That's exactly
1: what's going to happen. And they have no control over whether they leave or not. And they seem to almost treat certain members of the population as if they're expendable and they're not expendable. We need them to be here. We need affordable and luxury housing built all over the place. I'll say one thing. They sure haven't stopped constructing d- during the pandemic and even afterward these days. There's a lot of development going on. But it is really what is, uh, the, the as I said before, the backbone of the city. And you'll really find out how bad it can be if they do move away or if you have situations like we had in the 70s where the proliferation of crime and the uh, unaffordability of of uh, housing at that point created uh, a really squalor condition around the city.
3: I, I agree 100 uh, percent. And the last time I spoke to Napoli, uh the last 12 months, I thought, uh, I think David, uh, Governor, you were there. Uh, the, the last 12 months, the income taxes were down like 31 percent, or was it the first quarter? In the in the. Um The first
1: month that it really became obvious, I think, was April, where we came in at um, about what you said, you know, like 30%, 31%. And it's been the same with May and June, and the July numbers should be coming in pretty soon. I don't think that's going to be any better. And nobody, it's almost as if it's a secret. Nobody seems to want to uh, address it, but it's there. And uh, I had this problem in 2008. I came in in March. I passed the budget in, budget in April. I thought everything was fine. Then I looked up in the first of July, and my finance people are telling me we are 5 to $10 billion in arrears in out-year budget gap. And we did call the legislature back that summer. But then, uh, because we didn't do as, as enough as I wanted us to do, we had to face a $21.3 billion budget deficit. In 2008, 2009, and that was crippling. Somehow, we got through that, but it's just like in your family. If you if you can't meet the expenses, you're going to fall behind, and then the only thing you can do is borrow money, and that puts you in an even deeper hole.
3: Now, in relation to that, uh, the migrant crisis is getting uh, almost at a uh, at a critical point.
1: I think it's at a tipping point where there just aren't – you know, look what happened at the hotels where the hotels were filled up. They were trying to get the excess migrants that mostly – males who couldn't get into the hotels, and they chose to sleep on the streets rather than going to another facility. Finally, on Wednesday, Jamani Williams, who is the public advocate of the city of New York, he had a press conference warning President Biden that he might not get the votes out of New York that he thinks he would get if he doesn't do something about this migrant crisis. Now, I don't think that that would really happen, but it was certainly an element of frustration that the public advocate was fomenting that everybody else feels. And Mayor Adams bravely has taken on the administration and talked to them about the problems of sending all these migrants, but not sending any significant resources to help house them. They're actually companies that exists, John, that actually placed these types of people all over the world. There was a crisis in Iraq recently where it was so hot, people couldn't live there. And the company went in and relocated them someplace else. I'm not sure it was in an adjoining country, but they can't even do it because there's no money to pay them. And that's what's what's happening here. And it it just seems to be something that the administration has just decided they're not going to focus on right now. While I don't think they'll lose the vote in New York, I don't think it makes them look very friendly to uh, the needs of the state that, you know, president serves.
3: Governor Patterson, I think me and you should stay on top of this because it comes to it's coming to a critical point and it's going to get there sooner than later. Also, this November, we need some common sense uh, uh, city council people to be voted in, not the people that want to defund the police.
1: Well, the whole discussion of defunding the police is so misplaced and it is so incendiary that I'd really be surprised if anybody right now wants to get up publicly and say that that's a good idea, especially after what we've faced over the past few years.
3: Then what we should do is take a survey and see if anybody out there is yelling about that. And uh, let's see how they vote in uh, in the city council. I'm with you. Thank you, uh, Governor Patterson, and uh, I'll see you on Tuesday at that at, at, at that convention. That or it was a convention, is yeah. a, a forum, it's a, a real estate forum yeah. for New York.
1: Thank you, John.
3: AHEPA was created a hundred years ago, and it was to fight prejudice in the uh, Greek American community and all communities. Uh, with us today, he was just elected Supreme President of AHEPA. And uh, we have Savas Chivikas, and uh, Savas Chivikas, uh, you've been elected for a two-year term, just about uh, to fight the prejudice in in, in in America. Tell us what. Tell us a little bit about Ahepa and what they they have done in the past, and what your vision is to do in the future.
6: Well, Aheba John was founded in 1922, uh, on July 26, in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, to fight uh, um, the discrimination and the prejudice against uh, the Greek American community with the purpose and the goal to assimilate the new immigrants uh, the new immigrants into the American society. And I must say that uh, 100 years later, uh, Aheba has... Uh, been able to do that, and we are very proud that uh, the Hellenic American community is fully assimilated uh, with uh, many notable uh, um, examples. But the fight uh, goes on because um, discrimination still exists in many many different levels, and AHEPA is uh, fighting the same battle to make sure that everybody has the same chance and the same opportunity, especially uh, the Greek Americans.
3: Now, tell us, you're elected. Uh, what is your vision over... Uh, th- there's so many problems in America lately. What is your vision going forward, and w- w- what is your mission? Well,
6: it is uh, uh, a critical time, uh, as you said, in uh, American society right now. Uh, it's polarized, it's divided, and I, I has to rise above that and keep, uh, keep our... Uh, members uh, focused uh, and uh, and try to push uh, unity uh, for the purpose of our membership, but also for uh, the good of the greater uh, greater society. Uh, if we stay divided, uh, I'm afraid that uh, we're not gonna be the leader of the of the world, and everybody will be looking at us uh, as a as a second or third world uh, country. Therefore, the responsibility on the shoulders of all of us is, uh, is uh, great, especially uh, on our membership who have come a long way, who have fought uh, discrimination and bias, and now is our time to shine.
3: Understood. Now, AHEPA uh, operates in all 50 states?
6: AHEPA is in every corner of the United States. It's in Europe, it's in uh, Greece, it's in Cyprus, it's in Australia. It's a global organization.
3: And AHEPA it, stands for American Hellenic Educational uh, Progress Association. Correct. Understood. Well, we wish you uh, luck and congratulations on uh, being the Supreme President. And uh, if any way that WABC can help you and any problems that you have, we are here to help you. And again, congratulations on being elected Supreme uh, President of AHEPA and uh, prejudice is not acceptable in any community. And thank you so much for coming on WABC today.
6: Thank you so much, John, and looking forward to working with you in the future.
3: God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you so much. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Councilman Robert Holden in New York City, and we have a problem. Migrants, they're overflowing. Councilman Holden, can you give us an update what the heck is going on with the migrant situation?
7: Well, it's still out of control and getting worse by the day. We're approaching, by today, we're approaching about 100,000 total individuals that have come in who claim they, they're asylum seekers, but we don't even know because they didn't even apply yet for asylum, many of them. And they're mostly men, able-bodied men, and the problem that we have in New York City is New York City's putting up more than half of them. And, of course, the taxpayers of New York City, you and I, are paying for this. So what advantage do we get? What, what do we get about this? What happens to, to New York City? What's our quality of life going to be like? So I joined uh, fellow Democrats on Monday who were kind of late to the game. I've been complaining about this for a couple of years now. And then finally, my Democratic colleagues are complaining that this is calling on President Biden to do something. But President Biden has done his worst, actually, coming up with 300 executive orders tied to immigration, which were designed to make it easier for anyone to come into our country. Some of these policies made headlines, obviously, such as halting the construction of the border wall and ending President Trump's successful remain in Mexico policy. But everything that he's done is really made to have more people come into the border and, and uh, really have and, and, essentially and a, southern, uh, a southern border that's open.
3: Consummate, nobody, nobody can really figure it out. I mean, what is he trying to prove? I mean, uh, we're being invaded. I mean, uh, the American people are always good people. and They want to help people from overseas. But right now, this is more of an invasion than a migration.
7: I mean, the difference uh, the difference we're seeing now, John, is that uh, when my, uh, you know, ancestors came to this country, they came in the right way, but they didn't get anything. They had to work hard. Many times they were discriminated against in in this country, but they still persevered by working hard. But they didn't get handouts. We're giving handouts. Who, I mean, can you imagine this? 56,000 we, we're putting up and we're feeding them, clothing them, and doing everything and giving them a roof over their heads. This is insane. We can't contain no, can. this. And, and
3: there's American poor. In New York City, there's American poor. There's American veterans that don't have a a pot to urinate in. We're not helping them, but we're helping people that we have no obligation to.
7: Right, and, and they're not like... Uh, you know, the right to shelter law that uh, was under the Ed Koch administration, uh, there was there was a lawsuit, and we had to shelter homeless, but that was meant for homeless New Yorkers, not homeless South Americans or Africans or Asians. This was meant to house, again, people who are New Yorkers who lived in the city and needed a home. So that, that the right to shelter is being challenged now by the by the Adams administration, which is which is right. He's right to do that. The mayor is correct, and hopefully New York City will win this. And then we don't have to shelter everyone that comes here.
3: The American people can't figure it out because now there's rumors around that uh, uh, there, there could be a lot of t- terrorists coming through and whatever. Well,
7: that but, yeah, uh, that, that is a—you know, if any city should learn a lesson, it should be New York City from 9-11. Uh, it just took a few individuals— who came in illegally, some of them came in illegally, to take down the World Trade Center and kill thousands of people. So we should have learned a lesson. We haven't. In fact, we created laws now to make it make us uh, less safe. By the way, New York taxpayers, New York state taxpayers, shelled out $9.9 billion every year in uh, federal, state, and local government programs that serve one million illegal immigrants and asylum seekers. Again, almost $10 billion a year we pay out of our taxes for this. I mean, come on, it's we can't not sustain right. this. And then, then you add on more um, asylum seekers. So like, you know, and I'm going to say this, and I'm, I'm a Democrat, John, but for, I would say if you look back the last two years, President Biden and his administration have followed a disgraceful playbook of how to destroy U.S. cities by flooding you know, those cities with unvetted, unskilled individuals who can't, who are prohibited from working? You know that it, some of them, are, it's going to take ten years for to process their applications for asylum. That means they can't work for ten years.
3: Councilman Holden, keep your eyes open and thank you for your common sense. And we'll catch up with you again real soon.
7: Thanks, John. And joining us is someone who knows Haiti very well, uh, the former uh, NYPD commissioner, our dear friend, Ray Kelly. Uh, Commissioner Kelly, we love having you here on the show, my friend. Uh, What's going on with this case and what's going on with Haiti?
8: Well, Haiti is a basket case. There's no question about it. poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. It has no functioning government. The uh, uh, president was assassinated. In 2019, nobody has replaced them. 200 gangs, at least 200 gangs, are basically ruling the, the country. So something has to be done. And there is a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Just this past weekend, uh, Kenya, of the Kenya is a country, of course, in East Africa, has agreed to seriously consider Sending 1,000 police officers to Haiti. This is the only country so far that has that has even even spoken about going uh, to Haiti. So hopefully that will entice other countries to uh, to get involved. The our State Department is looking for a multinational uh, national uh, task force that is funded by the United Nations. Now, there is no uh, resolution in the UN to do that, but that's what. That's what we're, we're, as a country, trying to do. So they need all the help they can get. I don't know if the Kenyans can do it. And, of course, if the Kenyans can't do it, I certainly hope it does not fall back onto the U.S.
3: Ray, you China know, was- the Kenyans, uh, the, uh, uh, the the Haitians can't do it. So somebody has to do it. Otherwise, those people are suffering, and it's even worse. Uh, you know, it's just bad. Something has to happen. It's-
8: Absolutely, there's, uh, there's been over a thousand kidnappings so far this year that wow. we know about.
1: Wow! Maybe
8: not more. I mean, and uh, you know, it, the 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 murder rate is extremely high. Uh, Voodoo is a real fact of life in Haiti, and it really is sort of negative spiritualism that uh, blames any problem on evil spirits. So you know, it's, it's a- very difficult to make progress there.
7: You know, it's amazing, too. I mean, you now, think about
3: you know how close it is to Dominican. You know what New Yorkers should look at? That all these city council people that want to defund the police, that that those people, they're voting for them? Give me a break. You know, you're going to end up being like Haiti in New York City if it goes any further.
8: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think we're far away from that, but certainly the potential of something bad happening. In New York is is right up there. So uh, as I say, this is some hope. We'll see what the, uh, what happens. But they are in desperate shape. Of kidnappings. You mentioned the kidnapping of the nurse and her uh, her son. Uh, I sent detectives to Haiti, to try to teach them how to investigate the kidnappings, and uh, we did a, we did some of that, but it certainly has, did not catch on. And that's that's now several years ago, so they are they are totally ill equipped to investigate uh kidnappings basically in any time there is a kidnapping uh somebody is paying you know they're not paying the full amount that they're asking for but uh, that is a thriving business uh in this uh in very much a twisted country
7: wow really scary and by the way they're asking for a million in this case too is the what they're asking this is yeah. scary ray thank you thank you Ray
3: kelly and you did a great job when when you were a police commissioner new york was the safest city in the in the world thank you so much yeah thank you thank you john this is the catch round table we'll be right back welcome back to the catch round table up, up the way with us today is Steve Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky. He always comes on on Sunday mornings to tell us to expand our minds and look up in the sky and what are we going to see and what are we going to dream about. Uh, Steve, uh, what is, what's up on the front page today? Well,
9: John, good morning to you and the listeners. We start off with the innermost planet Mercury, which, by the way, people can actually see this weekend <clears throat> if you look in, excuse me, into the northwest sky after sunset. Mercury, as we know, is a very elusive planet. But the Europeans sent the spacecraft toward Mercury called Bebi Colombo. And what it does or what it's doing is it actually detected, like we have on the Earth, these auroras where the uh, sky lights up from protons from the sun. But since Mercury has hardly an atmosphere, this spacecraft saying that this particular planet, which is bathed in the heat of the sun, only 36 million miles away from the sun, auroras actually exist on this planet Mercury. And what happens is protons from the sun hit the dark side of Mercury, shoot up into the above atmosphere, if you want to call it a slight atmosphere, and actually go and pound the ground on the daylight side. So on Mercury, this is bizarre, auroras, John, would start off on the ground, and if you were on the surface of Mercury, you would see this amazing kaleidoscope of colors. Well, the universe continues to get more interesting, don't you think?
3: It it certainly does, and uh, we know a fraction a fraction of what's really yes. going on. That's why I think so many people enjoy your uh, your piece every Sunday morning because it adds to the the mysteries. It adds to our, our ways of dreaming about learning someday of what's going on.
9: Well, thanks, John, for the compliment. And, you know, we continue with this mystery of the week. We talked about it before. The question is the mystery. What happened to the water on Mars? But it gets more interesting. Mars is only about 4,200 miles in diameter, obviously smaller than the Earth. But this particular planet has the largest volcano in the solar system. It goes up to a 75,000-foot height. Remember, Mount Everest is just a little over maybe 29,000 feet. It's as big, John, as the entire state of Arizona where I'm at, 375 miles wide. So that's the largest big volcano in the solar system. It's actually larger than what we call on Earth. Mount Everest is not the tallest of all mountains, at least from the surface of the Earth, it looks that way. Mauna Loa and Mauna Kea, the volcanoes in Hawaii, are actually taller than Mount Everest. But let's go back to Mars. Scientists are saying that this particular big giant volcano, by the way, called Olympus Mon, was active billions of years ago. And around it, they theorize, was this gigantic deep ocean So Mars in its early days was very active with volcanism, and imagine seeing, John, a volcano the size of the state of Arizona, but where the heck did the water go? And the simple answer is, at least a complicated answer that astronomers hope to find the answer officially to, is that Mars lost its magnetic field, but I think between you and I, a lot more things happen, but this volcano is absolutely massive on a small planet.
3: How is our uh, rovers doing uh, up there in Mars? Well, we find Perseverance is still continuing.
9: There's obviously changes in the weather on Mars, and what we're going through right now, John, is remember the light time that it takes to send signals between Earth and Mars. Mars is at one of its most distant, you know, distances from the Earth right now. We're talking about 200 million miles. So it takes those signals a long time, but the rovers continue to do I consider to be stellar work, no pun intended. What they're doing is particularly Perseverance. It's actually drilling into the surface of Mars and removing in these small, what we call them, type test tubes so that in the future, a Mars return sampling mission will land on the surface of Mars near, let's say, Perseverance, scoop up, hopefully, this sounds like science fiction, but it's real, and return those precious samples back to the Earth from the red planet. So Mars is still continuing to be on the front page. It's amazing how those robots continue to work And fairly flawless, but a lot of them are done and used, that is, solar power. And the little Ingenuity helicopter, it had a period of time where dust actually settled on the solar panels. But hopefully that's been cleared because that's done amazing work as a tiny little drone. But there's something, John, in closing closer to home. Scientists, Korean scientists, are saying that removing too much carbon dioxide from the atmosphere may simply not fix climate change. What is this all about? But changes in atmospheric circulation may persist for centuries, they're saying, after CO2 decreases. So they did an experiment, and they hypothetically said, let's increase the amount of carbon dioxide for 140 years, and let's see what would happen if we tried to reduce it over another 140 years. And they found out that the climate would not return to normal in their simulation for another 200 years so this is amazing. We're all talking about global warming. Some people talk about years ago global cooling. But the simple point I'm trying to get across to the audience, and hopefully, you know, very simply today, as a theory, is that even though CO2 is considered a demon substance, it's so necessary for life on Earth. But these scientists are saying that well, even if you tried to decrease it. You may have some serious circulation problems in the atmosphere. And one of the reasons, John, that this whole big, serious you know, summer here in Phoenix, we call it the epicenter of hell, is that these weather systems get stalled, and these high-pressure systems, more about this, hopefully, in future editions. But I wonder what your take on this is. It's just so fascinating that we're talking about what might happen if you tried to reduce CO2, but necessarily, that may not be the solution to climate
3: change. And uh, we had a person uh, from NASA addressing our breakfast group last Saturday, and uh, we got at it. He felt that warm temperatures is is permanent climate change. And I said, well, you know, the Earth traditionally uh, goes up and down over hundreds of years. Absolutely. What else would you like this Sunday morning?
9: Well, John, I want to end off always on the super positive note that things that people can actually see in the sky. We talked about the innermost planet Mercury. You can actually see it with the naked eye. Look, just about 20 minutes after sunset in the northwest, if you have a clear and unobstructed view of the horizon. But after that beautiful supermoon, by the way, we get another one on the 30th. We call that the super blue moon. That'll be the closest full moon of the entire year. But, John, the meteor shower called the Perseids is actually, you know, warming up. It'll peak on the morning hours of august the 13th but what we can tell people is look in the northeast sky after midnight even though the moonlight might interfere a little bit but toward the 12th and 13th i've watched it for over 40 years and this is a great sky show if you're away from the city lights even city lights may be able to see a few northeast sky around 1 a.m till sunrise the sky may pour forth many many meteors And to learn always much more about what we do, simply go to WABCradio.com for the Dr. Sky Experience. John, we have a brand-new update where people can listen in and they can learn so much more about things that they can see as we open people's minds up on Sundays on the Cats Roundtable. Proud to be part of your show.
3: Thank you so much, uh, Steve Cates, and we'll catch up with you again real soon. Enjoy your ride to the mountains.
9: Have a good morning. Thank you.
3: With us today is uh, Eric Schuffler, and he's uh, the president of the Ferry Hawks. And, uh, Eric, give us an update. What's going on with the third best team in uh, the New York area? Uh,
5: Hey, John, there is so much going on in Staten Island. You know, our stadium, the best view, I think our view is probably better than even Yankee Stadium and City Field. But, yes, New York City's third professional baseball team. We have a big weekend this weekend. And on Sunday, we have a great day with Kids Run the Bases and a special Marvel Superhero Day, Captain America. So a chance for all our kids to get out there, see a real American hero, run the bases, see professional baseball up close and personal with a view that is the best in America. And, of course, John,
3: your favorite,
5: Nathan's Hot Dogs.
3: Oh, I love those Nathan's Hot Dogs. Uh, And, uh, uh, Eric, uh, I understand next week... You have the Savannah Bananas coming in, and a lot of people know who the Savannah Bananas are, but t- t- a lot of people don't know. Tell us about it, John. This is a huge
5: win for you know
3: for you and I for the Ferry
5: Hawks for, for Staten Island. Really, the Savannah Bananas you know are doing thirty team visits across the country. They play entertainment baseball. They dance. They do skits. They do trick plays, and we have them coming in Friday and Saturday night. 6,000 people. The stadium is sold out both nights. You cannot get a ticket. And we're going to bring all those people to see the greatness of Staten Island to come visit the North Shore, check out our restaurants, and see our beautiful ballpark. It's going to be an amazing, amazing night uh, for Staten Island.
3: Understood. And, And tell people about the Savannah Bananas. Who are they? So they're a team
5: of some of them are former major league players. Some of them are really good college players. The thing that's really cool about them is they're really good baseball players, but while they play, they do trick plays, and they've made up their own rules. So the game can only last two hours. If a fan catches a foul ball, it's an out. And while they're pitching, and again, they know how to play, they're doing behind-the-back throws. They're doing dance skits in between innings. The whole game is designed to be this immersive fan entertainment experience while at the same time playing competitive baseball.
3: And that's in Staten Island and uh, uh, right on the North Shore. You can get through it uh, through uh, the ferry uh, in Manhattan, uh, et cetera, etc right? And uh, tell us, how did, if people want to go this weekend, how do they get tickets?
5: Just go to our website, ferryhawks.com, dot com or just come to the box office. We have Captain America and Marvel Superhero Day on Sunday, 4 o'clock game on Sunday. Sunday, kids run the bases. And, John, the team's winning. Uh, we had a big win yesterday against York, the first-place team, and we have just have a big signing we did on Friday with a Japanese superstar from the Nippon League, Yoshi Tosugo, who was one of Japan's all-time home run leaders and played in the majors for the Pirates and the Rays, he just signed up with us and hit two home runs, two home runs in his first three games. It's been really fun to see. We have a lot of Japanese fans coming out, people waving flags, really a World Baseball Classic you know, feel, and the team's on a roll.
3: Well, thank you so much, Eric Scheffler. I'm looking forward to seeing you at the game, and God bless you, and God bless America, and play ball. Play ball. Thank you for being with us for the Cat's Round Table local edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cat's Round Table national edition between nine o'clock and ten o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.